This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There have been many Ukrainian cities hit hard by Russia during this war. But there have been few places that Russia has hit more consistently and more indiscriminately than the besieged port city of Mariupol. They just bombed a theater in Mariupol with hundreds of people seeking refuge there, including children. This was struck by a Russian airstrike. City officials now report 300 people are believed to have died in that attack. The Russian word for children was painted on the ground on both sides of this building. The letters were so large, they could be seen by satellites. The city is located between Crimea and two Russian-backed separatist republics in the southeast. Russia sees it as a key target. Their bombs have hit residential buildings, hospitals, schools, factories. Before and after photos show some city blocks completely leveled, cutting off access to the most basic human essentials. I saw with my own eyes how very hungry people were breaking into some food shops. Hungry people breaking into food shops. There's been no food delivered there, we understand. She was saying. Survivors then face a terrifying set of questions. How do I get out of this place? And where do I go next? Today, I'm talking with CNN senior international correspondent Ivan Watson. For weeks, he's been meeting with people who have made that journey out of Mariupol. We hear their stories and look at why so-called humanitarian corridors out of cities like Mariupol are so fraught with danger. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Ryan. So, Ivan, we're talking on Thursday. Uh, where are you right now? I am in Zaporizhia. It is an eastern city in Ukraine. So far, it's been spared the, the ground war. It has been hit by airstrikes and, and, and some rocket attacks. It is flanked by front lines to the north, quite some distance, much closer to the east, and closest directly to the south, to the extent that there are skirmishes with Russian forces, from what I'm told, less than 30 miles from where I'm sitting right now. So you've been kind of in and around that area for a couple of weeks now, but I want to talk about Mariupol here to start, because that's been the subject of so much uh, intense fighting and just utter destruction. So I kind of want to trace the journey of people who have been lucky enough to make it out. So can you set the scene? What have people there been dealing with over these past couple of weeks? I've talked to dozens of evacuees now, and they all describe enduring round-the-clock bombardment from the Russian forces that have laid siege to the city surrounding it. And they all describe hearing hourly airstrikes, uh, constant artillery bombardment, and in the last couple of weeks, um, bombardment from 
warships in the Sea of Azov. Hmm. I'd say half of the people I've spoken to say that their homes were either partially damaged or completely destroyed in this. They all describe, first of all, being in an information black hole because the cell phone networks went down, the internet went down, the electricity, the heat, and the running water went away. So people were either hiding in basements or trying to find other kind of makeshift shelter, what they thought was the safest room in the house, and having to forage for things like firewood to cook food outdoors on grills. Wow, that sounds Uh, pretty medieval. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a modern-day siege. Uh, So having to go to drainage sewers for for water that they tried to boil to drink, Hmm. um, and also not even knowing really what was going on the next neighborhood over because there was no communication. That's just the siege part. That's not the escape. Right. I want to talk about the escape. We've heard about these humanitarian corridors that are supposed to be set up. In a perfect world, how does that work? Well, part of the problem is because there's no information, it was kind of word of mouth. So people would kind of hear from somebody, oh, we hear that people are going to be allowed to escape. Uh, So what they've been relying on is their own vehicles gathering in one part of town and then going through Russian checkpoints in large makeshift convoys of civilian cars that have often been damaged in the ongoing bombardment. Hmm. And the people who are trying to flee, they hear that they're going to go through Russian checkpoints and they're warned ahead of time by people ahead in the lines. This takes hours to go through the checkpoints where their cars are searched, where the men have to take their shirts off to show that they don't have tattoos that might identify them as combatants. Wow. And then their phones are searched. So the word goes down the line of cars waiting to go through a checkpoint, wipe your phone, wipe all your social media, wipe your photos and your history. To the extent that one young man, because there was no electricity, his phone had died, uh, an 18-year-old guy. And then he said he got to the checkpoint and the Russian soldiers plugged it into a power source and then started going through it uh, and saw social media posts, he'd said, that were critical of the Russians. And he said it was the most scared he'd ever been. Hmm. So you have this indignity of people who've watched their city get destroyed, maybe their homes destroyed, seen bodies out in their neighborhood who then have to be searched by the same soldiers who've been shelling them. So when we hear corridor, this is not just like, okay, on your way. This is like a really intensive and scary process. It's a scary process, and there are many layers of it. People describing having to go through 14, 15 Russian checkpoints, huh. where sometimes the, the, the Russian soldiers, they say, are very polite and kind to them. Uh, and other times they say they're quite rough and, and swearing at them. Uh, and then in one terrible uh, account, a family described how they went through a Russian checkpoint. They were held there for quite some time. And then they left and drove up around a, a, a road and took a wrong turn and hit a group of Russian soldiers that opened fire on them. And there were six people in the car, one 11-year-old girl named Milena 
was shot through the face. We started turning, and that's when they started firing at us from submachine guns. After that, the family jumped out of the car with their hands up. After which they were shouting something. We did not know what. And the soldiers screamed at them, and they came up, and they realized they had seriously wounded this little girl. We took her out of the car as she was wounded. The mother of Milena said that the soldiers then arranged to help get her to a nearby hospital uh, for immediate first aid, and then she was sent uh, to Zaporizhia, the city where I am now. I met her about a week and a half after that injury, and she, she almost got killed. The doctor said the bullet was a hair's width away from her carotid artery in her neck. Wow. She has not so good psychological status. She worries, she cries, she afraid uh, different sounds. In addition to the, the physical wounds, her mother said that she was awake throughout the whole ordeal. God. So her doctor said that the, the psychological damage is substantial. Your sister, is she doing all right? Um, no. Really? She's like contusé. She's got a concussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also spoke to a survivor of the March 16th bombing of the Mariupol Drama Theater. My name is Maria Kutnyakova. I'm from Mariupol. I'm Maria from Mariupol. And this survivor, she said that her apartment was destroyed, and then she and her mother and sister took shelter in the corridor of a friend's apartment for six days, and they were in the thick of it. There, there was a Ukrainian military position near their building, and so the Ukrainian troops and the Russian troops were firing back and forth, and they were stranded there. They f finally heard during a brief moment when she had cell phone signal that people were taking shelter in the theater, mm. and that there was even an evacuation planned from there. Six people, like with a cat, we go on, on the street, and Russian tanks started to shoot in us, and we were running with craziness. And then so the family and the and the friends, they all tried to make their way there. They said they came under fire from Russian tanks while going there. And then the bizarre scene of walking into the theater where volunteers greeted them with hot tea. And you know what? In the theater was a lot of people. They was like, "Be okay. We have a food." They give us a tea. So after finding this safe haven. Maria then went to check on an uncle who lived nearby, and she said she didn't know if he was alive or dead. And he was alive. She's at his apartment, and then she hears... I hear in the noise of the plane. The telltale sound of a Russian warplane overhead dropping explosives. She starts heading back to the theater and then notices this red piece of roof on the sidewalk that she recognizes is from the roof of the theater. And uh, everyone uh, screaming the names, you know, like Mama, Papa, Lyosha, Sasha, and I'm starting calling like Mom, Gala. And she starts screaming for her mother and sister's names. And somewhat miraculously, they survive. They're hit with rubble, they're wounded, but they're in one piece. Everyone starts uh, screaming that Setra uh, uh, is on fire. Mm -hmm. So we should run. And Maria then says, that the building comes again under fire from artillery. So we run in from the theater and bombs was like this, this, this. And they start running to the Philharmonic, which is a couple blocks away. And they get there and they're under fire there at night. And she says, I slept on the floor that night, afraid that I'm gonna die in the Philharmonic and thinking, 
oh my god, what a cultural day I've had. I've been in a theater which got bombed, and now I'm in the Philharmonic, and it might get bombed. You seem very positive and upbeat right now. Uh, I understand that I'm very lucky. I'm very, you understand, like, thousands and hundreds of people still in Mariupol and they bombed. They have no food, no water, uh, they have no medicine, nothing. Like, I have my arms, I have my legs, uh, uh, what I need anymore, nothing. And your family. Yeah, and my family. My... More of my conversation with Ivan Watson after a quick break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I also want to talk about your time in, in Zaporizhia because they recently instituted uh, a curfew during the day, which is interesting because most of the curfews we've heard about in Ukraine have been at night. So what was the thought behind that? Yeah, I think two Sundays in, the, in a row, they've had these emergency daytime curfews. Now, part of it is explained to me that this gives a break to the security forces here. When there are fewer people out in the streets and cars, the police, the territorial defense, the army, they don't have to be working as hard. It gives them a little bit of a break. Hmm. It also lets them hunt for suspected Russian collaborators. We have passed many deployed Ukrainian soldiers. We cannot show them or film them for their safety. And we were escorted by the, the police force here and got a look at these eerily empty streets. Every car which uh, goes to the city um, is checked. It was surreal to just have these empty boulevards all to ourselves. Um, and then the next day, <laughs> it was like a switch flipped and, and the streets were, were full of, of traffic and pedestrians again. And that's all the more striking, I might add, David, because this city is maybe 20, 30 miles away from Russian tanks. Hmm. I'm curious, you know, as you say that if Russian skirmishes are happening, you know, fairly close by, what is the mood there of people you encounter just walking around? 
doing your job? I think that one of the things that you see when there's a conflict like this is, is the ability of people to adapt to a new reality. Evacuees, internally displaced people fleeing for their lives, terrified, shell-shocked, are showing up in this town. It's the most calm they've seen in a long time. Meanwhile, people here are kind of walking their dogs and walking their children around and still kind of going to work. There's a semblance of life going on, yet at the same time, it's, it's very, very different. And there is paranoia here and suspicion and fear. For example, going back to the first village I, I went to in central Ukraine, we went to try to get a sense of the moon, David. Get out of the car, pull up to this village. I'm going to meet a local town official. And we've gotten there before he has. And a babushka, a Russian grandmother, sees me get out of the car and immediately pulls her phone out to call the police on me and asks me somewhat rudely, who are you? And she's, she's ready to bring down the wrath of God on me because I'm an outsider and there's an invasion. And who the hell am I in her village? And I had to kind of go up and kind of talk her down and say, look, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm just a reporter. I'm coming to meet a local official. At the same time, there's, there's tremendous hospitality where people are inviting me to stay in their house. And that's the last thing they need to do. They need to help displace people. But I think this is a very natural reaction to a country's much larger, more powerful neighbor launching an unprovoked invasion of their country. And... I always ask people, do you have relatives in Russia? Do you have friends in Russia? And everybody does. Hmm. Everybody. And most of the time, they've stopped talking to relatives and friends in Russia because they say those friends and relatives refuse to believe them, that their country is being pummeled right now, that much of the population is fleeing. And they're even told things like, it's you, the Ukrainians, who are doing this to your own towns. It's Ukrainians that are opening fire on their own towns and villages. Uh, the propaganda runs that deep. It runs that deep that people say, I, I can't talk to my cousin anymore. This is my own uncle. I can't talk to them anymore. And that's, that's one of the most profound things to hear over and over and over again. And frankly depressing. Because w what lesson does that leave us? with when we look at the polarization in our own countries. That is truly frightening. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about Russia's aim here, because they, they said they were coming to liberate Russian speakers in Ukraine. Do you get a sense from the conversations you've had that anybody is looking for that kind of help? Oh, they're furious about this, because the bulk of the ground fighting has taken place in and around Russian-speaking cities and towns in the east of the country. And the police, who are all native Russian speakers from birth here, this is a Russian-speaking city I'm in, they concede that there were people here who were supportive of Russia, who felt culturally close to it. One cop told me, hey, my dad supported Putin until Putin sent columns of tanks and started shelling Russian-speaking cities, including the one that the guy lived in. Hmm. And you see this cognitive dissonance. I've seen it with uh, a, a Russian-speaking man from Mariupol who escaped, who was a factory worker there. There are these enormous steelworks. And he said, 
man, I, I used to feel close to Russia. I would tell people I'm an ethnic Russian and now I'm more Ukrainian than ever because the Russians are destroying my home city. And this guy said, I've got a Russian friend in Russia. And he says, hey, don't worry, Vova will come and fix everything. Vova is a nickname for Vladimir Putin. It's like Bobby, <laughs> right, for Robert. And, and the guy said, I don't need Vova to come and fix my city. I didn't need him to blow it up in the first place. So the damage that Vladimir Putin has done to relations between Ukrainians and Russians cannot be overstated. There's an enormous mobilization of the population. If not to take up arms, then it's to join the volunteer effort of resistance uh, against what Ukrainians call Russian occupiers, or in anger, they call them orcs, hmm. you know, invoking J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. This military cemetery brings home the stark reality Ukraine has been living with for years. I visited a military cemetery uh, outside the, the eastern city of Dnipro, and that taught me a lot because many of the people I've spoken to out here, government officials in city governments, for example. How do you manage a city and fight a war at the same time? I say, oh my God, how do you keep the city buses running on time and clean up the garbage and fight a war at the same time? And more often than not, the answer will be, we have previous experience. This is because of the war that you have weapons. Yes, yes, it's a normal for me. It's a normal for me. There's been a war in this part of Ukraine since 2014, since Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula, stole it from Ukraine, and backed Russian-backed separatists in the two self-proclaimed breakaway regions in the east of the country. And so in the military cemetery, there were dozens of graves from Ukrainians who've died fighting in that war from 2014. And then you walk across a gravel dirt road. These are preparations in case there are more casualties. Yes. There are dozens of new crosses hmm. from Ukrainian troops who've been killed since the Russians invaded Ukraine on February 24th. It's a Mikhailo. Yeah. Very, very young man. Very, very young man. Born in 1997. Yes, 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 yes. It's a very hard for us. Many Ukrainians see the current conflict as a much larger continuation of a war that Ukraine has been fighting against Russia on their own territory since 2014. Like this is not new, they, but this is bigger. And, and, and now it's here. This is bigger, but Ukrainians also have experience. There are veterans of that conflict that are taking the lessons and the skills that they've learned and they're applying it to fighting against the, the, the much larger in Russian invasion in the north, east, and south of the country. And judging by what we've seen, their resistance on the battlefield has surprised the Russian invaders and occupiers. Ivan Watson, thanks so much. It's a pleasure, David. That's it for us today. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, we'll have new episodes of this podcast for you every Sunday and Wednesday. And if you're looking for real-time updates on the war, CNN Five Things is there for you. You can subscribe wherever you listen. 
Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by me, David Rind, along with Audrey Horowitz, Nathan Miller, and Paula Ortiz. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Andrew Morse, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Elizabeth Roberts. We'll talk to you next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.